KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. The fall surge is here. We are setting records we do not want to set. The infection rate is alarming. Health experts are using words like catastrophic and horrifying. And yet, if you look at AAA's travel stats, it looks like millions of us plan on ignoring the pleas from health experts to stay home on Thanksgiving. And while we've gotten some great news about two potential vaccines, they are not going to help us right now. Dr. Frederick Bushman is a professor and chair of the Department of Microbiology at the University of Penn. He's also co-director of Penn Center for Research on Coronaviruses and other emerging pathogens. You know, it's interesting. I was looking uh, through my notes because we had spoken before. We spoke back in April. It seems Mm -hmm. like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Yeah, lots changed. It has. And that's what, you know, we want to talk about today. And there just seems to be so much to talk about. Um, When you look at the, the infection rates that we're seeing today, what does that tell you? Well, it's extremely disheartening to see the epidemic soaring the way it has. And we know that deaths uh, lag behind the rate of infection so that given the soaring rates of infection, we can expect soaring rates of deaths. They're already starting to come on and every reason to think they're going to continue to come on. So we need to do better. We need to do wear masks more consistently, engage in social distancing, all the simple things that we've uh, been instructed to do. We need to do better and more consistently. Hopefully a vaccine will come on and help us eventually, but it's not going to help us right now. And even as it's implemented, it's going to take a long time to have much effect. So really the simple things are what we need to focus on. We were warned about this. Scientists warned us that we were looking at a possible fall surge. Why weren't we able to kind of clamp down and prevent this from happening? Well, yeah, it was foreseeable that there was going to be a fall surge in the great influenza in 1918. um, It was bad in the spring, largely went away in the summer, and then came back even worse in the fall. For these respiratory viruses, this is common. For the coronaviruses that um, circulated before SARS-CoV-2 and caused colds, those were very seasonal, probably because um, as the weather gets colder, people are spending more time indoors and in groups and If one person's coughing, droplet transmission is is very efficient. So um, it was foreseeable. Why we didn't get on top of it, I think it's a failure of leadership. We should have been um, focusing hard on the very simple steps I mentioned to reduce transmission, wearing masks, social distancing, closing bars, and uh, other sites where people can congregate to spread the virus. And Um, We didn't do that, and now we're in a bad place that's getting worse. Are we too far gone? No, I think um, we certainly are going to see a lot of further spread in that we're in an exponential phase now. It's going to get worse for sure, but we can influence that. We can flatten the curve by uh, taking precautions so that our hospital systems aren't totally overwhelmed. Um, which would be catastrophic. So, um, no, we need to act now. I mean, it's understandable that people are tired of of all the restrictions. Nobody likes it, but the virus is the virus, and we're going to have to respond to the epidemic or things are going to get much worse. 
So let's talk about vaccines because we, we're getting big news um, today and just a few days ago. Moderna says its vaccine is nearly 95 percent effective. Pfizer says more than 90 percent effective. Can you talk about how remarkable that is that these both vaccines say they're above 90 percent effective? Yeah, I think it's great. It's uh, the new mRNA technology. That's what both of those are. Uh, looks very promising. I think we need to be careful. Uh, it's not a done deal yet. So let's just talk through the vaccine development process. The First, you make uh, some molecules that provoke an immune response. And you ask, are they? Uh, does it protect against virus infection in cells? Does it protect against virus infection in animals? Then you can test those in people and ask, is it toxic or not in small numbers? And then you slowly increase the numbers to make sure there's no uncommon toxicities that you haven't seen yet. And then once you've gone through that, you can do a trial where you have uh, take a lot of people, give them your vaccine, give half your vaccine, give the other half a pretend vaccine, and then see what the attack rate is. How many get COVID-19? How many don't in each group? Is there a statistically significant difference? Meanwhile, you're also asking, are there any really rare toxicities that are coming up that we hadn't noticed yet? And so after you run this for a while, you can say, aha, the vaccines are pretty good or not, but in this case, luckily good at preventing COVID-19 infection. And you're also accumulating data on uh, long-term effects and rare toxicities. And after you do this for a while, you can get to a point where you're, you're pretty confident that the disease is much worse than any rare toxicities or long-term effects you haven't measured yet. So that's why you have to go through this lengthy, painful testing procedure. But that's also why at the end of it, you should believe that the vaccine is good for you and go out and get it. I think it's been entirely missing in the messaging that the procedure is slow and hard to test vaccines. But it's that's the reason that you should believe at the end of it that this is um, an excellent preventative and go and get the vaccine yourself. So it's astonishing to see how well the mRNA vaccines are working. They're, they've come through in record speed. There's uh, so far no signs of rare toxicities, anything like that, that would be a major setback. Um, I gather it does hurt a bit, at least for some people. When you get the mRNA vaccine, you can have a reaction at the site that makes you a little sore. People need to be ready for that. But that's much less bad than getting the disease and maybe dying. So yeah. we're, we're closing in on having a pretty clear picture that we've got vaccines that are where anything bad about the vaccines is a heck of a lot less bad than the disease. And so that's when, you know, you pull the trigger and everybody should get it. Yeah, there is a lot of mistrust out there about the vaccines and whether or not they're safe. And because the process has it is a rigorous process, but it has been crunched down a little bit. And now the vaccine makers are asking for emergency authorization. What does that mean? I think a lot of people hear that and think, oh, they're jumping ahead. Well, I think I favor going through the full testing procedure and not going to um, emergency authorization too early. Now, hopefully this, or I believe this is being looked over very carefully by statisticians and ethicists and that sort of thing to, to make the determination I just described. How sure are we that any unmeasured toxicities are less bad than the disease? And how sure are we that the vaccine is blocking infection? And um, once you have a, once you're pretty sure, and once you know you're blocking a really bad disease, 
then there's, um, you're at a point where it's ethical and reasonable to make the decision that we go now. But it's important as well that we make the very large-scale measurements, see the trials through, even if we start giving vaccine to healthcare workers or something like that, to still see through the, the basic measurements that tell us um, just how effective the vaccine is, just how effective the um, just how safe it is when measured over very large numbers of people over long expanses of time. We, we really need that information. And you mentioned just a moment ago, though, that the vaccine, it's not going to be like somebody threw a switch and we don't have to worry about COVID anymore. Can you tell us, like, once once we get the vaccine into the general population, what? how does that work and when can we... I guess, expect to be able to start kind of easing the mask wearing, the social distancing, things like that? I think we need to plan for mask wearing and social distancing, hand washing, all of that kind of indefinitely. There may come a day when we can let our guard down, but that's not coming anytime soon. The vaccine, I mean, it's going to take time to get uh, get it out, get it um, distributed. As you've probably heard, the Um, vaccine materials need to be kept very cold. So there's a lot of logistical challenges. It'll start going into healthcare workers, really vulnerable people, slowly expand out to the population as a whole. The population as a whole needs to, a large fraction need to believe it's in their interest to, to get the vaccine and not oppose it. And so that's why I think this messaging about it's hard to test, but that's why you should believe it. I think that's really important. And so how long does it take till we get to having a large fraction of the population vaccinated or having survived infection so that uh, the virus uh, stops spreading efficiently? I think, you know, it would be great if that was spring, summer, but we'll just see what happens. I don't know how long it's going to take. I think it's a, I think it's a big challenge we're facing still. We're, it's a lot better to have a vaccine than not, but that's not going to solve the problem overnight. Yeah, it's not a it's not a magic wand. That's right. So let's talk treatments. Your team has been looking at some treatments and I think existing drugs, if I read that correctly on your website, and whether they can be repurposed. Can you can you uh, tell me what have you guys found out when it comes to treatments? Yeah, this is um, work from Sarah Cherry at Penn and many others at uh, other sites around uh, the U.S. and the world. Similar to vaccines, it takes a long time to test a drug in humans. So, you know, for all the same kind of reasons, you have to make sure it's safe. You have to test it in small numbers of people, make sure nothing bad happens, slowly ramp up the numbers, then do a careful placebo-controlled trial or ideally a few of them, to show that it works statistically. And then you have a, a agent that you know works. Now, that takes a long time. So people are very interested in finding compounds that are already approved for use in humans that can be repurposed for use to treat SARS-CoV-2. And so there are some good examples now. Remdesivir was made to treat Ebola. It inhibits the machine that copies the virus genetic material. So that shows some effect in patients. Also, you can have an immune overreaction late in the disease. It can be very, very damaging to patients. And so that's treated by dexamethasone. And that's uh, shown benefit in, in patients as well. 
But unfortunately, you have to remember also that we don't have decades of drug development against SARS-CoV-2 yet. We have incredibly effective treatments for HIV, for hepatitis C virus, really unbelievably effective small molecule inhibitors to treat those virus, um, prevent growth of those viruses. And I'm highly confident we will for SARS-CoV-2, but we don't have that now. Imagine what's involved there. You establish an assay for viral growth. You establish an assay for function of one of the viral proteins. Then you screen maybe a million molecules in a big pharmaceutical company to find inhibitors. Then you take those molecules, you put them in animals, you make lots and lots of chemical relatives of those molecules to see which ones are most effective, which ones are least toxic. Then again, you do this sort of small-scale study in humans to see how toxic it is, larger-scale studies, then efficacy studies to see um, just how effective the molecule is. And then after a whole bunch of work and trying and failing with a whole bunch of molecules, maybe you're going to find one or two that really are highly effective. And then you've got a, a therapy that really works. But, you know, for HIV, that probably was 10, 20 years. So... It's very hard to get through that whole um, drug development process. But then at the end, you can have incredibly effective molecules. So for SARS-CoV-2, we're making do with what's already been tested. And we found some molecules that have at least a little activity. But it's going to be a while before we go through the whole drug development process and get the really terrific molecules that I expect we, we will have someday. Can you talk a little bit again about the mortality rate? Is the rate, I've, I've heard two separate things, like some people believe the rate is actually dropping. Is it or is it dropping because we're testing more, so the rate is being skewed by that? There are a number of things at play there. We are testing more, so it's not like we only test people who are really sick and come into the hospital, as might have been the case very early in the epidemic. The age groups affected are getting uh, younger, so they tend to do better. Um, still, there's deaths in overall age groups, but less commonly in you know college kids than in elderly people with pre-existing conditions. Um, and the treatments are getting better. The medical community is getting uh, more skillful at dealing with SARS-CoV-2, the medications I mentioned, and just general aspects of patient management. So for all those reasons, um, the death rate is lower than early in the epidemic, but that's not a reason to uh, let down your guard. There's still going to be one heck of a lot of people who die, unfortunately, mm -hmm. from this new wave of infections. Well, we're seeing hospitalization rates peak like we did back in the spring, and we're seeing you know, some states are being overwhelmed and have been overwhelmed now for a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's really bad. Once the hospital, once the medical system starts to break down under the load, we have a whole very serious wave of new problems, of course. So flattening the curve once again, people are, are tired of this, but it's hugely important that we focus on that. So let's talk about that. I want to talk about mask guidance because it's changed. You know, in the beginning, we were told masks don't help at all. Then we were told wear a mask because it prevents you from spreading it if you're infected, but it doesn't protect you from getting it. And then just a few days ago, we were told, actually, the mask does protect you from getting it. And one, can you explain why the advice has changed and why people should believe it? Because I think it's feeding into some, some people's perceptions or perhaps misperceptions that we're not getting either 
true, valid information or um, we're, you know, we're being lied to that for, for whatever reason, it's kind of bizarre, but some people do believe that. So why has this guidance changed so much from the beginning to where we are now? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think it's really unfortunate. The, the messaging from the very start should have been um, we're going to respond to information as we get it. We're going to do the best we can to keep the people safe. We're going to um, do the best science we can as fast as we can and tell you what the answer is. But uh, advice may well evolve as we learn new stuff. That's what should have been the answer from the beginning, and it wasn't. Um, having said that, yeah, it's hard to study um, what masks do. I mean, you're not doing the, the, what would be the key experiment. You uh, get people, put them in a, put somebody who's infected in a room with somebody who's not and see how efficiently they're infected if they're wearing a mask or if the other guy's wearing a mask or something like that. Of course, we don't do experiments like that because they wouldn't be ethical. So we don't have the direct experiment to tell us what's the very best way to do stuff. So we're relying on a bunch of indirect information. <clears throat> so, yeah, the advice has evolved. Um, it's hard to study droplets, uh, exactly what they're doing in air. What are the ones that matter? Um, I suspect we're going to be seeing a, a wave of sort of droplet physics going forward that will teach us a lot more about this. But yeah, people have been a bit all over the map with advice on um, mask wearing and um, who's benefiting the most. But there's no question that wearing masks helps avoid spread. And so quit whining and wear masks. <laughs> Put a mask on and be done with it. Um, well, yeah. part, part of it, I remember an interview I did with an infectious disease doctor way back in the very beginning the thought was that it was spread by droplets. And that has kind of, you know, changed as we've gotten into the pandemic and there's been more research too. Now we believe it's aerosolized. So that's a big difference, isn't it? Well, it's it's confusing. It's kind of the names of the sizes of the droplets, an aerosol versus a respiratory droplet. Droplets usually mean something bigger. Uh, these little balls of saliva can be floating through the air or they can settle down onto a surface. And so what do you name that exactly? So it's... um. I think it can all be a little confusing with the naming. But, yeah, I think people are thinking that smaller size droplets, or I should, maybe I shouldn't say droplets, uh, aerosolized material from your respiratory tract is floating through the air. Somebody else inhales it, and that's the basis of a lot of transmission. So, yeah, people. the view has been evolving, but again, it's something that's hard to study. You're never going to do the direct experiment of infecting people different ways to see which is most efficient and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, of, a lot of inference and sort of reconstruction after the fact. That brings us to the part of closures and what we can do, the restrictions that are being implemented. And that's also causing a lot of confusion and frustration beyond just the pandemic fatigue you know, why um, we just had, you know, from CHOP Policy Lab recommending that all schools around here uh, go virtual, um, you know, we're getting more information on, on, you know, the spread among children. And then there's a difference between young kids and older <laughs> kids. But I think people are also rightfully asking, why are we closing schools but allowing bars and restaurants and indoor eating to stay open? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think 
obviously there's um, political and economic dimensions. Um, it, it's it's very hard to manage. Uh, I don't see a lot of basis for keeping bars open, for example. I would like to see those closed. Question is, you know, are kids like more likely to transmit in school or more likely to transmit back home again? I mean, which, which is safer there? I don't know. I th- my my only plea would be to be to collect a lot of quantitative data carefully, analyze it carefully, and then go in sort of model independent. Just go with what works based on what you carefully measured. And again, I don't think we're hearing enough of that. I think I think what the messaging from on high should be. Okay, we've got this uh, brigade of measurements. Here's what we're measuring. Here's what we measured last week. Here's what we measured the loop before. Here's what our conclusions are at the moment. They'll probably evolve as we get new information. But based on what we know now, here's what we're recommending. And we'll get back to you with our new recommendation next week. I mean, why aren't we hearing that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, it, there's so much kind of conflicting information out there, too. Like, there, I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal that said health authorities basically have no idea where a majority of people got infected, which makes it hard, doesn't it, to figure out which restrictions to impose? Because I read an article a couple days ago that said bars, restaurants, gyms, and places of worship are the worst spots here. So, like, if we're having trouble figuring out um, for where a majority of people became infected, how can we then say, how can we figure out, like, bars, restaurants, and gyms, places of worship, are the worst spots for it. Yeah, it's hard. The, I mean, what you know is somebody appears and has a positive test. And, you know, what were they doing in the previous days, you know, last pre- preceding week or so? There's going to be a lot of possibilities for when they got infected. It's, it's rare that you have a, a really strong case one way or another. And again, why, why aren't we hearing about careful record keeping over the most clear cut cases that is telling us, okay, this statistically, this really looks like the the one we can pinpoint. We're seeing political rallies. We're seeing that there's, if you attended a political rally, you have X increased chance of having SARS-CoV-2 compared to somebody who didn't or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It seems like there could be a, a quite a bit more quantitative analysis that would then allow us to adopt better thought out policies. Well, there's so much resistance to contact tracing. Contact tracing is commonly to prevent further spread. Uh, once somebody is found to be positive, you go back and ask who have you been in close contact with and then get all of them tested to try to make sure that they aren't further spreading. Um, but the way the lid's blown off the epidemic in recent weeks, uh, I'm not sure how much we can hope to accomplish with contact tracing, uh, given the explosion of the epidemic and the, you know, the poor infrastructure we had even before the current surge. So I think, you know, yeah, it would be great to be getting quantitative information. What can we infer? What can we reconstruct about what happened with transmissions? It would be great to be doing contact tracing to close down further spread. But um, at this point, it doesn't look like that's something we're likely to be able to rely on. Rather, just the very basics, masks, hand washing, social distancing, and hopefully long-term a vaccine. So let's talk about Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, 
You know, the travel numbers from AAA, uh, they're predicting 50 million Americans are going to travel over Thanksgiving. That is down by just 10 percent. Does what does that number tell you? And are you concerned about that? Yeah, it'll probably be associated with a further surge in new infections. It's mm-hmm. really sad and maybe involving vulnerable people who are at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I unfortunately have to recommend that people not travel to make the best of it virtually and um, try to suppress transmission. Um Having a lot of mixing, I think there's widespread expectation that this will be uh, associated with a new spike in infections. I hope it's not, but um, seems kind of likely. What are you doing? How are you changing up your Thanksgiving plans? My family is just going to be the four of us, um, and we'll do lots of Zooming with Grandma and Grandpa and other family members and stuff. But, you know, we normally go up to the Boston area to visit with where a lot of my family is and Maine, where my wife's family is. But we're not going to do that this year. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's hard. People are fatigued. But if we don't do this, the consequences could be pretty dire. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um, There's going to be a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with this wave, but that's the reality. It's we've we've got to face that, do what we can to stop spread so that, you know, people are in a position to get the vaccine and suppress the epidemic from there. Dr. Bushman, thank you so much for joining us on In Depth today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I wish we had a more pleasant topic to talk about. (laughs) Me too. Hopefully soon. Fingers crossed. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie. We'll have another episode out soon.